Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Today, I would like to welcome Lonnie G. Bunch III, who is the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian. Lonnie assumed his position June 16, 2019. Previously, Bunch was the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. The museum has welcomed more than 6 million visitors since it opened in September 2016. Before his appointment as director of the museum, Bunch served as the president of the Chicago Historical Society from 2001 to 2005. He is a widely published author. His most recent book, A Fool's Errand, creating the National Museum of African American History and Culture in the age of Bush, Obama, and Trump, chronicles the making of the museum that will become one of the most popular destinations in Washington. Among his many awards, or having been appointed by President George W. Bush to the Committee for the Preservation of the White House in 2002, and reappointed by President Barack Obama in 2010. In 2019, Bunch was awarded the Freedom Medal, one of the four Freedom Awards from the Roosevelt Institute for the contribution to American culture as a historian and storyteller. The W.B. Du Bois uh, Medal from the Hutchins Center at Harvard University and the National Equal Justice Award from the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. Bunch received his undergraduate and graduate degrees from the American University in Washington, D.C. He's a good and personal friend, and I'm pleased to welcome him so that he can help me inaugurate uh, Clyburn Chronicles. I am so honored to be here. I'm really excited about the Clyburn Chronicles, so count on me anytime <laughs> you need me. Well, thank you so much, Lana, and thank you for your long friendship. And just let me say, we inaugurated this in 2020 Black History Month. Uh, and as you know, uh, I am a great lover uh, of history, as you are, and I've learned so much of it from you. But I want to ask my first question, probing a little bit. If you could name one defining moment or era in black history that has brought us to where we are today, what would that be? Well, I would argue that to understand 
the America of today, we need to look at the Great Migration, the movement of blacks from the South to the North, beginning in World War One and ending through the end of World War Two, because that changes everything. What it does is it changes the color, the tint, the tone of the cities. It gives African-American political leadership when the segregated South wouldn't let blacks vote. You also then have the civil rights movement coming out of that in the South. Those that stayed back realized that they had to also change the world they face. So for me, to understand where we are today, looking at the great migration is really crucially important. I think you've hit the nail on the head because if you look at all of the challenges that we have today, uh, it goes back uh, to people, uh, I think there was some up in that book, Man, Child, in the the Promised promised land. Land. Uh, It was a book that I could not put down uh, when I first read it. Uh, And I think it talked so much. In fact, it's instructive about who and what we are today uh, in this uh, uh, Black History Month uh, that we were experiencing. Uh, You know, I often quote Joe Santayana and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, various kind of forms of what he had to say about learning the lessons of history. And, of course, he admonishes if you fail to learn those lessons, you're bound to repeat them. Uh, As you were putting together uh, the museum, uh, what I think is one of the greatest works I've seen since I've been here in Washington. It is just an outstanding monument to not just that uh, migration, but things that uh, were previous to it. And uh, it helps project the things that may grow from it. Uh, tell us a few of those things that you, uh, some of those experiences you had in putting it together. Well, what I find fascinating is that it all came together, that there were many times without the support of you that we were worried. But I think what I love more than anything else is the way the public has responded to that. Uh, I think about the very beginning when I went to my first office and the door was locked and they wouldn't let me in. And I had to go to security and they wouldn't let me in either. Finally, I saw a man pushing a cart and he had a crowbar. And I used the crowbar to break into the offices. And I thought, I'm not sure anybody's ready for this that we have to do. But what I think I take more than anything else when I look at how we had to build a museum is how it's become that pilgrimage site, that America was ready to understand itself in a truer way. It was ready to understand race and how the African-American experience is not a separate story, but it's the quintessential American story. Everything who we are as a people, as a nation, has been shaped by that experience. And so I'm so moved when people stop me on the street and say, thank you. The other day, a woman came, was coming back from church, and I was in the grocery store shopping, and she said, I am so happy. I want to hug you, and then let us pray. And I said, let us not pray in front of the frozen fried chicken, but we'll pray (laughs) anywhere else we can pray. But I'm just really moved by the way this is a museum that has touched people. Well, that's great. um, We and I talked about this museum and the challenges quite a bit uh, in of course, uh, I was as anxious about this as uh, as you were. I'm sure mm-hmm. I didn't have the burden of raising the how many million? Over total, over 580 million dollars. And I want the public to understand that uh, your mandate was to 
raised 50 percent of the money yeah. uh, that Congress would put up half of that. Uh, so that means that we committed to 250 million, mm -hmm. and you had to go out and beat the streets and get another 250 million to make this work. And I think a lot of people do not realize that uh, this was a 50-50 public-private partnership, uh, and that to me is very, very important. But it's also crucial to understand that your support was so essential because well, I had to have private money, but I also had to have public money to lot leverage the private money. Right. And as you know, legislatively, there was no mechanism that said money for this museum would come X amount per year. Right. And so you were really help, instrumental in helping me think about how do I do this? Right. And so I think we were able to raise money because we had a good idea that the time was right, it was the Smithsonian. And people trust the Smithsonian. But I've, what we found out more than anything else is Americans had a thirst for this history. Um, they really, instead of seeing it as something that's not their story, sort of 70% of non-African Americans said, this is the story they want to know as well. And so we really sort of, I think, got at the right time to get this thing done. Over the course of your career, uh, you know, you didn't just drop out of the sky. You came here uh, with a tremendous background, uh, not just academically, but you had some experiences. Uh, uh, you and I have talked about some hiccups along the way. Yes, Lord. Um, how do you, do you think uh, that, that those four or five years in Chicago, uh, how did that uh, help to... Uh, uh, help you weather the storm, so to speak. You know, when I was at the Smithsonian before, I was a curator, then I was the associate director, but it never crossed my mind that I was good enough to be a museum director. Uh, it just didn't. There are very few blacks that are in these positions. And so when the Chicago Historic Society came after me, I said, you must be looking at the wrong person. And they said something very powerful. They had the mayor call me, Mayor Daly, and he said, if you could come to Chicago and be successful in such a racist city, his words, that you could change the city and you could change other institutions around the country. And like you, my goal has always been to make a place better. Yeah. And I learned how to be political in Chicago because, boy, the politics there are rough. <laughs> um, but I also learned how to ask for money which became really important, but maybe more than anything else, what I learned in Chicago was how to articulate a vision, how to get people excited about it, how to use the media to get people to care about what you were doing, all things that really served me in good stead when I came back here. Well, you know, I've uh, talked to quite a few Chicagoans about you, and I'll never forget, um, uh, right after you were named, uh, Secretary of the Smithsonian, uh, Nancy Pelosi, had a little reception for you, and then we stood around there, and Jan Schakowsky from Chicago uh, came to that reception, and she spoke so glowingly of her relationship with you and how you navigated uh, through the many storms uh, that came your way there in Chicago. Uh, so you must have learned it pretty well. I, you know what I learned? I learned that um, I had to develop relationships with political people. Yeah. You know, you, it wasn't enough to be smart or to be right. You had to figure out how to get this thing done. <laughs> yeah. And people like Jan were real helpful to me. And so I, yeah. I, but I must admit, when Speaker Pelosi um, organized that reception, 
I was tearful the whole time. I couldn't believe that yeah. people like you would take your time. Oh, I'm, I'm just some historian. That's all yeah. I am. And, no. and I was so moved. I, I still think the only thing I'm sad about is that was the day my mom got sick and couldn't come. I would have liked oh, her yeah. to, to yeah. see that. But eventually I'll get her down. Oh, I'm sure you will. Sure you will. And I'm sure she's looking forward to coming and joining you. I, I, I got to ask you, uh, early on as we were uh, trying to get it all done, put together, uh, I asked you to accompany me down to Charleston. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people uh, who uh, will not hesitate to uh, brag on my uh, congressional district. Uh, Charleston mm-hmm. is a mm-hmm. part of it. Uh, and I believe Charleston is one of them. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite frankly one of America's most historical cities. Yes. Uh, and when you think about uh, the black experience, uh, so much of the black experience started. Uh, exactly. for enslaved Africans mm-hmm. through Gaston Wharf there in Charleston. And having taught in Charleston, I knew many of the families there and I knew many of the stories. And I knew you needed to be in mm-hmm. Charleston and to listen to some of those families and look at some of the stuff that they had. And I uh, tell us a little bit about that experience at Burke High School uh, that afternoon as people poured in, bringing stuff from under their beds, out of their attics, uh, stuff that uh, uh, you just marveled over, and a lot of what you took away with. I did. I, you know, What we realized is that because we started the museum with nothing, that we had to build collections. And I realized as I talked to you that Charleston was so essential, um, both in terms of the early origins of slavery, going through Gadsden's Wharf, to really the civil rights movement, um, and to the kind of culture that came out of that city. And so when you were kind enough to sort of help us get to Charleston, and what I loved is that people brought out everything. I don't know if you remember, there was an elderly gentleman who brought his grandson and he pulled out a plow. And he oh, talked yeah. about you know how to work the plow and how his grandson never understood what work was, but the grandson looked at his looked at his grandfather with glowing eyes, yeah. and I suddenly realized the key to our success is telling those stories, Absolutely. allowing people to do that. And I I remember people bringing old basically pieces of fabric yep. that turned out yep. to be wonderful quilts that their grandmother, great-grandmother had made. Mm-hmm. It really convinced me that we could do this because I'm making it up. I, I hope it would work. You know, I wasn't <laughs> sure, but Charleston convinced me that people would not only bring their stuff out, but they would share it with the Smithsonian. They would share their stories. So it was a special day for me. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I, that was a very moving day in myself, though I knew a lot of those families I had no idea what they were hoarding away in their attics and uh, how emotional uh, you could get. Uh, looking at those things. You remember the woman brought, one woman brought a family Bible yeah, and started so. sort of touching the names of her family. And if by touching them, yeah. they still lived for her. It yeah. was very powerful. And you know, those old Bibles were just handed down generation yeah. to generation. Mm-hmm. And, and it means so much to people. And I, I was kind of uh, pleased with the number of people willing to give some of that stuff up. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Just so they be preserved and shared with so many people. I also remember uh, my grandson. Uh, well, I brought both my grandson and granddaughter. He had just graduated college. And uh, they were coming up here, and I wanted them to spend a couple of days with me. And I arranged for them to go over and spend a day at the museum. 
So I dropped them off at the museum and went on to do what I had to do. And I said I would pick him up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. When I called around 4 o'clock, I couldn't get him to answer his phone. Uh, and finally, I called his sister. And I said, Sydney, uh, you guys, I got to pick you up. You got to go. Uh, but I can't get your brother to answer my phone. He says, he's still in the basement. Wow. Well, the tour starts in the basement. Mm-hmm. He went down to start the tour, and when he walked in, he saw that old slave cabin yeah. that you all had brought up mm-hmm. from Edisto Island yep. that he saw when he was on a field trip uh, oh. as in grade school no. uh, there in Columbia. Really? He got so enamored with that, he just stayed there, <laughs> and he never left the basement all day. And now I got to bring him back up here so we can see what else is in this year. But that's the kind of the emotional stuff that uh, yeah. the young people uh, get in touch with the, the reality of what our history really is. See, I think that is so important. What we discovered is for many young people, they had only experienced the virtual. You know, yeah. everything's on their phone. And so we realized that if we could use their technology to get them in, suddenly they could actually look at that cabin. And you can't imagine what it's like without looking at it, looking That's how right. tight the spaces were. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that what I find so powerful about the museum is that the artifacts, the stuff matters. And that people either relate to it, tell their own stories, or suddenly marvel that people were able to overcome the burdens of segregation and slavery. So I I have to be honest, before I became secretary, every day when I went to the museum, the first thing I did was just walk through the galleries to remind myself, no matter how bad the day was, this is why we're doing this work, to make sure these stories are told and remembered. Right. And yeah, I, there's another little museum that I have got a little something to do with, uh, the International African American Museum down in Charleston. Mayor Joe Riley uh, approached me several years ago and asked would I cheer the steering committee to get that museum started. Uh, we have now broken ground. The museum is now being built, and it's being built on the site yeah. of Gaston Wolf. Uh, and I think that's going to be a very, very a great project. It, it has so much meaning. And you have been so central to that. Uh, Mayor Riley has, has spoken to you many times about it, and I've told him to keep talking to you because <laughs> now we'll, we've got to get us a new uh, museum director mm-hmm, down there, and mm-hmm. I hope that you uh, help us with it. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your uh, interaction with Mayor Riley and the International African-American Museum that's being built in Charleston. Well, I think, first of all, as somebody who believes that museums matter, I want to help museums that are doing important work, telling important subjects. But I'm almost a little envious of the International African-American Museum because most of us that work in museums have to manufacture reality, right? We have to manufacture sacred space. But there you are on Gadsden's Wharf. That is sacred space. Um, That is where thousands Thousands of African Americans came through during the colonial period and laid the foundation for the creation of the colonies, for the political system. So in a way, that museum has got so much going for it. And I want to do everything I can to help you, to help Mayor Riley, because I think it tells an important story. Every time I'm in Charleston, 
I learned something new. I learned something new about black history or when I stand on that wharf and look out and try to imagine what it was like for the ships to bring these people in. I want everybody to feel that experience. And that's why I'm so excited about that museum. Well, thank you. Uh, that uh, touches me a lot as well. I, you know, I went to Charleston to teach uh, history at the high school level years ago. And, you know, though I knew the history, uh, I had never lived it. Mm. Uh, and uh, living in Charleston uh, gave me the opportunity to live some of that history and uh, getting to know all the people, except McClark and those yeah. people that uh, mm. meant so much. I, I, I'm interested, though, in um, whether or not uh, you see uh, a role that not just the International African American Museum, but other uh, museums dealing uh, with African American history and culture around the country, how you see them uh, from your perch at the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we coordinate some of that? I think, uh, to me, they shouldn't be silos. Uh, that some kind of way, especially uh, via the internet, we can get them all connected and so that people can have uh, experiences that will be more, much more broad than the ones they happen to stand in. Well, I think that what has happened since we built the museum is that attendance at all of the African-American museums has gone up because people have gotten excited about the subjects. And what I try to do is make the museum, like when we tell the story of the slave cap, and I say, go look at Edisto Island, go look in Charleston, so that we want to push people back to these local museums and local entities. And I think the way to do it is to really think about, can we create a virtual association? where these institutions share artifacts, share important stories, leverage the Smithsonian name. So I think that, one, we want to make sure people know what's there. Two, we've already begun to help local museums with their training. Um, I send... I'm no longer there. I used to when I was director <laughs> of the museum. I would send people down to work with local museums to help them, you know, do all the paperwork they need to train their staff. So I think in a way, what I realized more than anything else is that I built the National Museum of African American History and Culture because I stood on the shoulders of those other institutions, Absolutely. those folks that did this. So my goal was never for this to be just about Washington, but really to say that you, whether it's Charleston, Detroit, Los Angeles, you have a place that'll help you understand African-American history through the lens of your community. There's nothing more powerful than that. Absolutely. And, you know, so many of these people, when we uh, talk about the International African-American Museum down in Charleston, uh, my history tells me that uh, more than half of the enslaved Africans uh, that came into this country, came through right. uh, the Charleston Harbor, and most of them offloaded there at Gaston Wharf. And uh, I read somewhere that uh, around 70% of all African Americans in this country can in some way trace their lineage back to Charleston, South Carolina. And so I think that going forward, uh, that museum uh, has got to maintain very close contact with the National African American the Museum of History and Culture. I think uh, that's going to be very, very important. Because I think you've put your finger on something really important, sure. and I want to see the International African American Museum take advantage of it. 
that wharf is Ellis Island for African Americans. Absolutely. Um, it's that important. Absolutely. Um, and I think that as you framed it, you have all these people who come and they're sold to Virginia, they're sold to North Carolina, right. later sold further south. Absolutely. But they So that's why I think some people have roots tied to Gadsden Wharf. And I just want people to, what I want, maybe more than anything else, what I tried to do was to help people understand, especially African Americans, but everybody understand, slavery is nothing to be embarrassed about. Uh, I wish I was as strong as my enslaved ancestors. Right. And I want people to be able to look at Gadsden's Wharf and understand the pain. Even the anger. Sure. But understand the resiliency and the strength of a community. And that's why I think that in some ways, Gadsden Wharf is so important because that strength then radiated from there throughout the South. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was kind of interesting on the day that we were breaking ground on the International African American Museum, uh, Elijah Cummins was being funeralized uh, in Baltimore. Uh, and the day before wow. that, we had service for him mm-hmm. here in Statuary Hall. And um, uh, I spoke at that uh, groundbreaking, mm-hmm. and I talked about uh, Elijah Cummins uh, and why that museum uh, had to be built uh, and why it had to be about African-American history beyond slavery. Yep. Uh, because a lot of people did not know it, but Elijah Cummins wrote or in Clarendon County, South Carolina. His uh, great-grandfather uh, was a slave there, and uh, his parents left there, came to Baltimore, uh, where he was born and raised. Uh, but we had to have a museum that would not just tell the story of his great-great-grandfather, yeah. but also tell the story of what he had done, Absolutely. how he had overcome. And there's, there's Elijah. I agree, yeah. and, and how basically what you want a museum to do is help people to understand the arc of justice, the arc of people's change. Yeah. That even if he grew up, you know, you grow up in Baltimore, or you grow up in New Jersey, your roots are in the South. Absolutely. You're always going to the South. Right. So what happens there transforms the rest of the country. So I think that our goal is to create museums that say. Here is the sweep of this history. Um, mm-hmm. This history may, uh, the, the roots are in slavery, um, and so you never lose those roots. But there's so many other parts of this life. Um, as I tell people all the time, African Americans just didn't cry. We mm-hmm. sang, we danced, we Absolutely. loved, we had full lives. Absolutely. And that's what I wanted a museum to tell those story. You know, if I were to ask, uh, just thinking about the future, uh, understanding uh, as you do, uh, the past and experiencing as we all are the present. Uh, would you have any uh, uh, thoughts or suggestions to pass on or any ideas about how you would tell that grandson of mine uh, who's still stuck in the basement, how <laughs> uh, to elevate yourself a little bit, going right. up to That's the right. first and second floor and then going uh, out uh, onto the barrel. What would you say to uh, A.C. A. Clyburn Reed. You know what's clear to me is what I want people to take away is, one, the strength that they have in themselves that they may not know. Mm-hmm. And two, what I want people to realize is that nothing is guaranteed. So the hard-fought gains of the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement are always under threat and that the key to a successful community, a central country, is 
as Lincoln said, as, as Jefferson said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Right. So what I want is, if I've done my job right, that your grandson becomes part of a generation of activists who believe that their job is, much like you believed your job was during the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. to help a country live up to its stated ideals. I think I don't ever want anybody, my kids, my grandkids, to say, things are good. I want them to say, things are always going to be better if you get involved and keep the country accountable. As I was preparing for this year's political activities, I uh, set about rereading some of uh, de Tocqueville's writings uh, about what he saw as the magic of this country. Uh, De Tocqueville wrote uh, in one of those volumes that uh, America's greatness is not that we are more enlightened than any uh, other nation, but that we've always been able to repair our faults. And I do view uh, the work that you're doing at the Smithsonian, the work you did uh, at the National Museum, as a part uh, of repairing uh, some of the faults that exist. Uh, and I, I just want to congratulate you for that. And well, thank I, I you. I wonder how you feel about that. Well, I feel very strongly that my job is to use history to illuminate all the dark corners of the American experience because you can't improve on those corners if you don't see them. And I think one of the things that I'm struck by, and I think the Tocqueville is absolutely right, Americans have a greater appetite to work to improve themselves, to perfect the republic than many people give them credit for. And my belief is, as I watch the millions of people who have come through the museum, regardless of race, suddenly find moments of excitement, moments where they say, we can overcome if we overcame that. I believe very strongly that, as you do, history is an amazing tool, a tool that gives people opportunities and understanding and better ways to live their lives. I wish everybody talked about history like you and I did, because I think we'd be a stronger country. I think that you're so right about that. uh, There is a room in the museum uh, that is very near and dear to me, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, a native of my home county, Sumter County, South mm-hmm. Carolina, little town of Maysville. There's something getting ready to happen that I, uh, I don't know if I'll, uh, I'm hoping as we develop these chronicles, I can spend a little time on exactly who that woman really was. My mom's made me learn everything in the world about Mary Claude Bethune. Uh, she just thought she was the greatest person mm-hmm. who ever lived. Uh, my mom's was a beautician that Mary McLeod Bethune had organized uh, mm-hmm. uh, beauticians mm-hmm. uh, into uh, the National Council, or what's now the National Council of Negro Women. Right, right. So uh, Mary McLeod Bethune is about to make uh, history again. Uh, a lot of people may not be aware, but every state gets the opportunity to put a statute in the Capitol. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Florida decided uh, a couple of years ago that it was going to take the statue out of the Confederate general that mm. this guy there and replace it with a statue of Mary McLeod Bethune. Oh, my goodness. Mary McLeod Bethune will become the first African-American to have a statue in the Capitol that was placed there by a state. 
Now we have some others there now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Harriet right. uh, Tubman, mm-hmm. uh, we've got Rosa Parks, right. uh, we've got these statues, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, but this will be the first time a state has sent a person of color uh, up here. That is unbelievably powerful. That is really, boy, that tells me, that gives you hope in America. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, for me, I remember first learning about Mary McLeod Bethune, and, you know, here is this sort of tiny black woman with FDR. Or, you know, I'm thinking, who is this person? You know, and so, I mean, her life deserves to be much better known than it is. Uh, You know, I mean, I think 30 years ago people knew who she was, but now I bet most people don't. But, oh, what a power, what a belief, what an ability to educate and change the world. And so I'm, I'm really excited. I can't wait to see it. Well, uh, yeah, it's going to be great. And, and, and I'm going to celebrate uh, Women's History Month uh, next month in March. Uh, talking about Mary Bethune, and I, I really am going to uh, use the Chronicles to read off her last will and testament. What a document. I think that everybody needs to hear mm-hmm. her last mm-hmm. will and testament, mm-hmm. and we're going to do that next month. Let me thank you so much uh, for helping us inaugurate uh, Clyburn Chronicles. Uh, I hope that uh, you and I can continue to carry on this relationship that Absolutely. I think has done. I don't know what my relationship has done for you, but I oh, know no. what yours has done for me. And you are thank much you too so kind. Much. Thank you. I, I am so honored to be with you. As I've always made clear, I couldn't have gotten a museum open without you. Um, it helps me on so many levels. So I'm looking forward to more opportunities to talk history and can't wait for you to talk about Mary McLeod Bethune. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.